out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the Leicester bass band. It is Prolapse, because I recently spoke to drummer Tim Patterson to find out more about life, love and poetry. Now, Prolapse, they have got two John Peel sessions that have just come out on the precious recording recordings of London. Uh, their 94 release and also their 97 release. So do check out the precious recordings of London Prolapse to find out more about that. Anyway, this is the interview. So after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that exciting subject. It was the early formative years and early musical influences. Tim, we are waiting with bated breath. For me, I was born 68. So it was sort of very late 70s, 1980, really, um, and getting into the whole Scar, um, Madness specials, that sort of stuff. Yes. Was my first thing. Yes. and I remember vividly, I mean, there was a few things I remember. I think the earliest song I remember is, um, you're talking about glam, was um, Come On, Feel The Noise. Uh, that's pretty much my earliest pop music memory. Um, but it wasn't really until about 1980, 1979. And, yes. Uh, Madness and specials. Baggy trousers. You would have just... It was actually my first ever single I went out and bought. What, Baggy trousers? Yeah. It had to be done, didn't it? I know a few people who were born more sort of towards the late, late sixties, and it was always you know either Two Tone or Toya Wilcox, really, which mm. which is fair enough. And um, it's a classic. Did you come from a whereabouts in the UK? Did you come from, by the way? Where were your Where was your? I, I was up in the northeast, um, in Northumberland, um, on uh, just sort of small ex mining area. Well, I guess it was a mining area at the time. Ex-mining yes. Area now. Uh, actually lived on the same street as our bass player, um, Mick Harrison. Um, and also um, the lead singer out of Hurrah also oh, lived a few doors. Was that Paul? Uh, yeah. So it, just looking at some the um, precious recordings stuff, and because uh, obviously he's put out um, Hurrah just... Um, whether it's out yet or not, but I think it was following our release. Um, and I just thought, what's the chance of that? Of like <laughs> one st- small street in Northumberland actually producing, you know, bits of two of his releases. Um, when you look at the whole area that he's covering. So there you go. It was very unlikely. By God, I love people who have got that eye to, t- to detail, though. But, but with your area, I mean, there's the sort of folk music tradition like Catherine Tickell. With her bagpipes, isn't there? Which you might not have come across. And there was an indie yeah, band. Well, actually, um, an old school friend um, was kind of she made a professional career out of um, Northumbrian pipes. A girl called Pauline Cato. So right. Not quite as big as Catherine Tickell, but she's made a living out of it as far as I'm. Yes, the the folk circuit is the folk circuit doesn't pay huge amounts, but it does sort of give you a certain income, doesn't it? And I think yeah. Catherine Tickell's done quite well. I think the other band that came from your area was a band called the Nivens, who lasted yes. 
yeah. very Peter Martin, who was the lead singer, who still had one of the greatest singles of all time in the 80s, which was Yesterday, which I still think is a classic, which I think got reissued on that Optic Nerve label from Preston, which is just, it's incredible. If you get a chance to listen to it, it will just blow your mind. So okay. uh, there you go. So did you, I mean, did you come sort of from a, a musical family at all? Yeah, not at all. I mean, not really. My dad had a double bass um, that he played very, very rarely um, when... Back, I guess it was in the 60s, early 70s, there would be kind of get togethers and uh, and he would stand at the back with a, a double bass that you couldn't really hear and he just sort of pretended he was playing it. So that was, <laughs> having that in the house was sort of, was fascinating. Um, not least when I, when I, uh, Start listening to the Stray Cats and thought, oh, we've got double bass. Maybe, maybe that could, that could work. And I think Peter Martin mentioned that he'd gone. He was taught by Sting. Somebody said, "Oh yes, Sting was our teacher for a year or something." Okay. But um, you didn't have any kind of moments with Sting. No, no. <laughs> we were we were in Northumberland, so about fifteen miles north of Newcastle. So uh, right, so you you missed that the city. So if you if you think back then, the uh, the furthest city away from the bright lights, and we were way away, well away from the bright lights of Newcastle. So it was, uh, yeah, it's quite an isolated culturally, quite isolated, really. Yes, well, I come from the countryside in East Anglia, and that sort of does feel like a a cultural, culturally barren time, really. So there wasn't that much around physically around. I mean, you just got it from you know the radio, top of the pops, you know. Yeah. And that was it, really. I mean, and also nobody wanted to, no one was into bands, you know, it was just playing football a lot of the time. So that was childhood, really, for music, you. Music was quite a big thing, um, but it was very tribal, which, um, so at school, you know, you had, I think amongst the boys, it was it was just, you know, the classic, the guys that were into heavy metal and the guys that were into Scar and Mod and... Uh, I would. I can't think of anybody, certainly not in my year, that was into to punk. No, God, like punk that. would have just didn't it was happen. Just clear sort of classic mods and rockers. <laughs> yes, it was status quo, a bit of metal, and um, that was it really. Yeah. You'd you'd have got beaten up if you admitted to liking the the latest album by the Beat. You know, just can't stop it. It was like, oh, you're a mod, I'll beat you up. It's like, <laughs> so it was. It I was, remember at a, at a club disco dancing to. Um, Dancing to something, and my mates say it was Queen. Another one bites the dust, and I'm quite sure how you can dance to that anyway. But he um he said, "What are you dancing to this for? This is this is metal. You're a mod." <laughs> <laughs> but did at they 12, use... these, these things are important. Yes, did they used to have that moment at a village? We we did in the village hall disco, where suddenly. You know, the young girls were just dancing and then the DJ would have like a few rock numbers and the blokes would just stand in the middle and headbang together. And then that would be, it was so tribal, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, I used to go to a, a youth club, I guess probably about 81, 82. And there was pretty much four, I think it was only about four heavy rock songs they played. Paranoid, Black Knight. Black Dog and 
There must have been a quo number. It must have had a quo Probably, number. Probably, yeah. But um But yeah, yeah definitely no, whole, par- lot Rosie. whole lot Rosie. Oh yeah, yes, but definitely I uh, yeah, paranoid yeah. was definitely one of those ones, and, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, and it was like um that was pretty much the only thing that the, the lads got up to, whether you were a mod or a, ro- a rocker, you headbang for a bit because it wasn't whatever else. They that was the best move you could do. So then what, what happened when you got to 16? Did you leave school at that stage or did you stay on? No, I stayed on. Um, and by that time, I was, I'd formed, I'd started playing music. Um, and so, yeah, my sixth form years was, uh, yeah, that, my main focus was, was the bands I was in, really. Um, yes. Which was, it was helped greatly by... My my friend Dave, who whose brother got a drum kit, um, just as we went into the sixth form, and he lived really close to school, and um, we, because being in the sixth form, you got free periods. Yes, so we would like leave leave school, go around to his house. He had a guitar, and we'd just sort of do um, guitar and drums. Um, and and formed a formed a punk band, um, which was what I had been playing up to that point. Um, the guy who had been my best friend through all of school, um, he'd got into, he was into sci-fi, and his musical awakening was while well, we were all into sci-fi. Went to see Flash Gordon, became a massive Queen fan, and then just that spread out through the world of, of rock and metal and so he was the only person I knew at that point who had a guitar so I was kind of getting steered playing one of the first things we tried we were playing was Spirit of the Radio by Rush that is is not how you start in a band (laughs) and then so getting off into the sixth form and and having a couple of hours off to write three chord punk songs it was like the 1970s in squeezed into 1986 you know it was um ditching all of the uh the old long hair stuff and um making it a lot more simple yes absolutely and so roger taylor was your sort of go-to hero at this stage no 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 i hated i hated it i was the thing i was i was being forced because of the the only guy i knew that played guitar he'd gone that way and as as a drummer you, you kind of didn't have the um the uh yeah it's hard to steer a band musically <laughs> behind <the> drum <laughs> yeah well though everyone says god the drummer is the person who holds it all together you know you need to have a good drummer otherwise yeah so so in a way you know it, it's the kind of most people have just mentioned to me i've never played in a band that that's that's the key the key element that keeps it all yeah, going but I, I think at this point we weren't even really a band you know it was just a couple of people playing some covers. There's no songs were ever getting written or anything. So yes. So did you digest the work of Michael Moorcock and Hawkwind? Start getting into Hawkwind and people like that? No, not really. No. Um. Uh, it's much more kind of um, you know, mainstream. Star Wars was the be all and end all. Right. Okay. Because I think quite a lot of friends just got into that Michael Moorcock kind of world with um you know the hawkwind and yeah. that kind of philosophy and 
started to sort of play with organ energy, but they didn't know what they were doing, actually. <laughs> I think that was just hopeless. But did the drums come, you know, did it come quite easily to you? Um, well, initially, my my instrument of choice was originally going to be the, was the saxophone. That's what I wanted to to play initially. And um, Christmas 1982, was it? We went into uh, Newcastle to look at how expensive saxophones were and they were far too expensive but the, this music shop had a, a single snare drum with a little cymbal attached to it um and it was like the cheapest thing in the shop and and drums had always been kind of thinking well if i can't do saxophone i'd like to do the drums and so yes. i got a, a snare drum and a single cymbal and uh it was yeah i would say it was reasonably okay just playing along to so, um, yes, really was the the main way to learn. Tried lessons, but didn't work. <laughs> didn't. It was just playing a. You know, I wanted to play a drum kit, and I was just playing a practice pad in the uh, school. Right. The school music room, and uh, they, you know, this, this peripatetic guy is that the word uh, that comes around, and it it wasn't pointing me in the direction I wanted to go. So. So then, once you've done your A levels, did you go to university? Yeah, um, and this is kind of music career-wise, it's kind of the weirdest thing, because I, I went to Manchester at exactly the time you'd want to be in Manchester if you play music, but I didn't play music at all. Well, a tiny bit, but I right. played music in Manchester. Saw a hell of a lot of gigs. Went to a lot of clubs, drank a lot of beer, but didn't play a great deal of music. I was still playing with, you know, bands from back home yes in the northeast in the holidays that's what i was was doing musically when my I god i thought you were going to say and that was it the, the moment yeah, blossomed. Well, it should have been <laughs> it should have been but uh yeah for some reason it didn't quite click and then it was only really afterwards that yes. um, i just thought you know what it would have been a really good idea to have tried to get into um into the music scene but i think manchester there seemed to be a very strong divide between the local music scene and the students that were um, consuming it. Right. So um, it was... I think James were largely students, but nearly everybody else was um, were um, locals. Yes. Over in Leeds, um, and yeah, I was thinking you never saw anybody from any bands out. Um. I saw Clint Boone about twice, and that was about the only person I ever saw out and about in Manchester during that that era. Whereas I had a friend who was in Leeds at the same time, and you got the pub and the wedding present and could and the mission would be in there all the time. But um, so it was very quite a segregated city. There was a, they were obviously somewhere, but they were never where the students went. But right, God, how strange. They were all, all in the same pub. I think they were sort of there's a bit of a big well, it must have been in Manchester, but there's quite a squatting scene and quite a, I don't know, a lot of crusties in Leeds, wasn't there, during the eighties, you know, from from friends who lived in the, in Leeds and went into squats and then sort of Yeah, I didn't know much of that, but it was um my my vision of Leeds at that time was black denim and little and little caps. Right. Yes. Yeah. That's the, the the uniform for um indie types in Leeds. 
Yeah. So, what 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 period were your was your university time in in Manchester then? Eighty seven to ninety one. Ninety one. Blimey, you got a grant and everything, didn't you? That was handy. Absolutely. Yeah. Not like <laughs> now. So then, where? How does the band sort of? Where does your next moment go to, to form the band? Well, what happened? I mean, during that time, as I say, I was playing with um people from home. And we had a, a band that was half um, my my sixth form goth band, um, a couple of guys from that. And on bass, we had Mick, um, who's in Prolapse. And he moved down to Leicester, uh, I guess it would be 90. And, um, and got in a band that needed a drummer and um and because we'd been in band back home i um i came down for the weekend and auditioned and um got in in that band so i was then traveling spent a year kind of between manchester and leicester um a lot of the time doing practicing and gigging with this band in leicester yes um, which ended up being there was three of us from Prolapse, we're in that band, and, and another guy, uh, Percy, but uh, me, me, Mick, and Dave. So, so it was. So that's what. So it was the band that brought me down to Leicester. I did manage to get on a, on a, on a course at the uni as well to, um, to, to give my parents a, an excuse for being down there. But the the main reason to go was, was, to continue that band, and it was around about that time that that band then sort of, um, overlapped with. The formation of prolapse. Right, it happened. Ninety-one, yeah. Yes, because it's kind of interesting period. We'd had the sort of um, the great change of decades and a slightly different change of a musical scene, and we'd had sort of the grunge scene of Seattle that had sort of crept into everybody's consciousness. So, what was it like for you know you starting a band at this stage? Well, Leicester was a great place to start a band because you had the Princess Charlotte, which was a real Focal point. My God, yes, I remember John Peel always mentioned Princess yeah. Charlotte. Didn't actually, you? We've just had, um, sadly, in the last about, about a month ago, the guy that ran it um, has, has passed away, and um, which is really sad. And you know, he got the it shows the importance that he had and the venue had. That I think there was a couple of radio shows on Six Music that dedicated to him the next day. Um, and considering that the venue hasn't been a venue for must be about 15, 20 years, um, that's quite remarkable. But back then it was a pub as well as a venue, and pretty much everybody that was in there was was in bands. So it was just such a, a great melting pot of 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 hanging out, um, exchanging ideas, and um, you know, bigging up your band. Um so was the was the kind of the gay bike? Were they in that scene? Gay bikers on acid and crazy head, and um... they would have been. But that was kind of really before I got there. Um, I mean, there was well, certainly crazy head was still playing, but um, they were, I guess, about five, five, six years older, and um, and weren't prominent. But um, yeah, they were still still there or thereabouts. Yes, because that was the great time. That was the great thing about that kind of couple of decades and probably other decades. But I just know that 
you know, the gatekeepers of, you know, like John Peel and Janice Long and then the music papers and then all these venues around the country gave everybody that opportunity to um, sort of get kind of get some traction, really, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, we are, we are an absolute debt of gratitude to, uh, to Andy for having, having faith and, and putting us on so early in our, uh, you know, before we've written any songs, really. <laughs> but we... We sat in the back room with the Charlotte and we talked a we talked a good talk. And, yes. Uh, so, what was the initial lineup? Because obviously, you have this incredible driving rhythm and twin vocals, which is quite extraordinary. Yeah. Well, the original. So the the first gig we did um, was actually supporting the the other band that me and Mick were in. So that was band was called Smile, and that was uh, it was a shoegazing band. Um, on the sort of noisy end of shoegazing, I guess. Um, and then Prolapse supported. So me and Mick were in both bands. And and then we had Pat on guitar and Scottish Mick on vocals. So it was just the four of us. And um, uh, so I guess we probably did about five gigs as the four piece. And right. Dave joined, so he kind of, the the first prolapse gig was also the last gig we did with Smile. Um, it was just so much more enjoyable, uh, even though we didn't have any songs. We were kind of making it all up as we went along. The whole experience was just more, so much more buzz to it than than playing in the other band, and so there was kind of no going back. And, yes. And Dave came to us, you know, a couple of months later after we'd done a few gigs and said, "You're great, but you need a second guitarist." So um, he joined. And uh, and then I guess a few gigs after that, Linda was supposed to be um, just standing on the stage with her mate who had similarly blonde uh, bob hair. And the, the idea that I seem to recall was like being the twins out of The Shining. Right. And, um, and not really saying anything, but just standing there being spooky and her mate didn't turn up and so she ended up behind the microphone just sort of reading out of books and um and that's where it all started really. my god that's amazing so so what was mick like because he's he's quite quite a, quite a ferocious vocal on him yeah um what was he like well he's oh, he's a lovely chap um nice no, um He's not like that. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, no, he's. Um... And when, once you had that gig and you had that moment on stage, did it just feel like, right, we're going to have to write all the songs with this quite incredible kind of dialogue between the two vocalists? Because it's quite, it's quite unusual, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, it, it's kind of like karaoke, really, because there's never been. We've never sat down as six people and said, right, got this idea for a song um, and the vocals are going to be like this. The four musicians write the music and sometimes that will be played live, fully formed, and sometimes it'll develop live. And Mick and Linda, I can hardly remember them coming to practices back in the 90s it would largely be we've got a new song they'd listen to it a bit and then they'd just really just write it on 
on stage. Um, I'm sure they did come to practices, but I can't remember many. Right. And, um, and I mean, to be honest with Linda, because you can obviously hear what Scottish is doing, but in our early gigs, um, we couldn't hear what Linda was doing. And it was only when we did our first demo that we thought, God, this is really good, because we had never really heard it before. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then similarly, once we kind of got a few albums in, I remember with the Italian flag, we, we'd had all the music. We'd been playing quite a bit of it live. We hadn't heard a great deal of the vocals. And and then Linda kind of went in and did all her, or both of them went in and did all of their, did demos of them. And that was, you know, the first time quite a few things. Certainly like Autocade, that that was presented as the music. It actually yeah. exists in a, was played live about two years earlier with completely different vocals that was only sung by Scottish Mick, I think. And then Linda, you know, took that one away and came up with, with the, uh, the, the, the pop of of Autocad, and that was wow, that's brilliant. But, um, Blimey, that is quite. But yeah, it's generally it's it's karaoke um, with quite separate. With with attitude, because yeah. actually there is, you know, I sort of did notice with the Norwich Arts Centre the 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 band does appear quite a few times at the Wild Club, I do believe. Yeah, no, we played those. That was great. I so mean, you must have um, you built up. You must have built up quite a following quite quickly. Um, I mean, it wasn't huge, but um, so it was very. Some places were great, other places not. Norwich was always good. Oxford was really good. Um, Leeds was really good, but then we had um, we knew people in Leeds because we when we signed to Cherry Red, we signed at the same time as um, uh, Tessie Fly, so that got us up to Leeds quite a lot, and um, so we always had good crowds there. And London was always was great but there'd be other places that you know not particularly good it was very could never tell where was going to be a good place where it wasn't until you you played there right so why would why did you go with cherry red um a couple of reasons one they wanted us <laughs> which was uh, uh and uh, i mean they kind of weren't on our radar really we'd sent we'd sent off demos to you know the likes of of Ouija and and Two Pure who were sort of leading at um at the time and there, there was a bit of interest then but it, things didn't quite work out but then um Tony uh, at Cherry Red he was at a gig well at the Laurel Tree in London we were supporting Mambo Taxi and uh, yeah and that that point Cherry Red had just started doing um. It was the first sort of wave of new bands that were signing, so they hadn't released any new, signed any new bands for years. Yes, and I think there was an emotional attachment, um, particularly for for Pat, um, because his brother um, Gary was in the Tights, who were the first band on Cherry Red. So the idea of this kind of coming full circle and um, you know, 15 years on from the tights, however long it was, Pat being on Cherry Red was, uh, was a real attraction to that. But right. Plus, you know, we really like the people. Um, Tony is kind of still 
till around now he became our manager as once Cherry Red decided they didn't want to do new bands anymore and dropped us after one album. But, yes. Uh, but yeah, that was good. I think the football angle was was also attractive. They were, um, you know, they um, sponsored uh, Kingstonian, which was um, which was nice. Um, you know, quite a few football fans in the band, and uh, so and obviously the back catalogue was. Um, you know, was very appealing, especially if you could go and yeah. get freebies. Did you? Who was the producer on the on the album, and um, where did you where did you record it? Well, the album. Um, so we we did a couple of singles first, um, which we did with John Robb um, up at Sweet Sixteen, Cargo as was in Rochdale, oh, which right. was was great to go up there because as a you know. The stuff that had been recorded there, you know, a lot of fall stuff, um, and and the studio was owned by Peter Hook, so you know, a lot of Georgia Vision fans in the band as well, and um, you know, having that tapping into that Manchester history was yes, was really nice, and um, but then for the album, um, we ended up with Steve Mack from that Petrol Emotion. I was wondering if that's the same person. I yeah, thought which it... was great because I loved the petrol um uh late eighties. And, and did and uh, was he a producer? Yeah, yeah, he'd done stuff. I can't remember what presumably somebody had we'd we'd listened to some stuff. I can't really remember the um the process behind him ending up being our pro- producer, but he was great. To, to spend um my god he must have been a fun time really because big decision was a you know one of the great songs of the 80s oh, yeah. wasn't it? no absolutely i mean so actually he was so the the petrols had just split up and he was mixing their kind of final live albums uh, of their last couple of gigs so um there's actually a little bit of them on on our um on our album the um if you listen to Tina, the, the last track on the album, um, the, the the big domestic brawl, mm-hmm. and the 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 fade out of that, there's some backward stuff starts coming through, and that's actually bits of that petrol emotion from the tapes that he was um, uh, recording over backwards i presume he had other copies of it but it was yeah <laughs> it's a their live album backwards underneath the, the end of that which is oh my god yes sort of credit. I don't know. that's one for the nerds isn't it but then you do a john peel session 94 yeah well actually we did the session in the middle of recording the album so um you know we're all in london so this was at um bang bang studios in Crouchend. So the middle Sunday, I think we were in there for two weeks and the middle Sunday we um, had to sort of decamp everything and then take the van over to Maida Vale. And did you have the famous Dale Griffin who produced you or was it Mr Robinson? Yeah, I, I, it's online. I tell you what, I, I should know this. God, yes. I think you would know if it was Dale because mostly people are traumatised by him for the afternoon. Yeah. But... um. Um, I say I've got a box of singles here that t- tell you who it is. <laughs> yeah, gonna... it's but, normally... um, no, it wasn't. There was no trauma to it. It was great. 
Um, yeah, no, I think it was it was Robinson. Um, Mike Robinson. Mike Robinson. Sure. Hold on a minute. Let me just. Oh my God! Yes, we need the facts. We can't just. I've got a box in there. Wait a minute. I'll be able to um, prolapse. Prolapse John Peel session. I'll find it. Do, 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 do. Right. Oh God! There you go. There you have. You have. You have copies of the new, the new album. Mike Engels. Oh, delightful. And Mike. Mark Barra. Yes. So at this stage, so with the just then after with this session well let's talk about the precious recordings of london these two recordings so what was the process you do these sessions john peel plays them you obviously gives you a big lift in life then how does this then sort of come out um 20 odd years later um almost i could almost say i don't know <laughs> because we just get contacted by um by precious recordings saying I'd love to put your um your your pill sessions out while you're for it. And uh we're wow, yeah, that was fantastic. Yes. And how um, do you how which do you... is the same as optic nerve as well? You know, we'd um so and it's great that the two have come at the same time, um, having pointless walks coming out um in a couple of months' time. So it's you know, nicely about six, well, I guess four to four or five months apart, the two releases and um um, so it gives a bit of a focal. Yes, and also there's enough time for those fans who've sort of like gone on doing done other things to have that moment of reflection and think, actually, I could deal with listening to Prolapse again after all these yeah. decades, which is always quite nice. I think I don't know. I had a love affair with a few bands in the '80s that you know after a while you sort of need to have a bit of a break because it's just it's quite nice. But then decades later, it can be quite pleasant to hear them again and. Um, Yes, just enjoyed them for what they are without too much baggage, really. So there you go. So who owns the the recordings then? You do these these two John Peel sessions in ninety four, ninety seven, and you think that's brilliant. We're on the, we're on our way. Um, and then does does Precious Recordings just contact the BBC and say yeah that? yeah they just um, and license them for you know um, so they would have paid some money to the to the Beeb for. Um, uh, for X numbers, you know, and uh, they they pay that, and um, and the beef still holds on to the the um the rights to them for you know in another twenty years time another label will come along maybe Strange Fruit will be re reactivated and uh, oh my god that would be else. a nice idea that would be fantastic actually so with yeah. the band you do your first album on Cherry Red then what happens next. Uh, we get dropped. <laughs> you get dropped. <laughs> it's a great cover. I like the cover as well. Yeah, well, that, that that is the thing that I am so excited about with the the re-release because that cover only ever existed on CD. Um, all of the vinyl was hand painted. Right. So we did some ourselves. Um, we did some. We did a gig at the Russell Arms in Camden, which was a sausage machine venue, which actually that was a club night run by 
Tony at Cherry Red and uh, Paul Cox from Two Pure. They used to run that. And um, we had a, a night there with loads of blank um, albums, please, on the wall with a stamp that said, you know, Prolove's Pointless Walks. And then people just came up, Mick and Linda did painting, people came up onto the stage, so all the, the gear was pulled forward and people could get round the back and and paint some sleeves out the gig. So that was that was a great night. Um, yes. Uh, so I think there was a thousand pressed and there was never, with the intention of doing a repressing and then it would be on the, the normal sleeve, but that never happened. You know, we got dropped before um uh there was the opportunity for that re re-release so you know that cover I, i've never seen in 12 inches yet hopefully and oh my God. i'll get some copies through the post but yes uh, so how did you pick yourselves up after cherry red records to sort of do a second the second album which well, is... i think we we'd already stopped we'd already got quite a few new um songs so we knew there was the material was coming through and to be honest i think it was because cherry red you know they they made a decision just as they'd done 18 months earlier to start doing new bands they made a decision to stop doing new bands so um you know it wasn't like we've got all these bands that we're going to focus on and you're not one of them yes that whole focus on new music um stopped for a while and um so the, you know they released us um petsy fly who it also signed at the same time and a few other bands and also the a and r man tony who then became our manager yeah and how were you and how were you sort of navigating the 90s the john major years and brit pop because obviously a lot of the people who went to see all those indie bands in the 80s suddenly formed bands in the 90s and were like, oh, we're on top of the pops. And suddenly we're much bigger than Bogshed and Big Flame. Stunt. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was funny because it was like. You would dip in and out of the of the. Because some of that Britpop stuff was was I was absolutely fine with, you know, it was good. I mean, Pulp. You know, I think they covered everybody generally seemed to have a great deal of respect for Pulp, who was sort of um head and shoulders above the uh, the noise of what was el- what was going on with a lot of the uh the other bands that that popped up. So there was there was a bit of a kind of a continuum. It wasn't, you know, it kind of gets painted in a sort of us versus them, but being largely based in London, I mean, although we most of us lived in Leicester, we, we kind of were generally active in London. You know, there was it was a, a kind of continual, continuous scene in places like the Laurel Tree and where you would see, you know, the likes of Stereo Lab, yes, same Pobers, the likes of Menswear, probably. I mean, I mean, <laughs> I, I may be uh, not entirely accurate there, but that kind of thing, you know. Various people were around from both sides of the uh, the um, the cultural divide, shall we say? I think the poet Murray Lachlan Young, who was the million pound poet, I think he's written a musical which is going to be produced and is going to be on stage this autumn called Rehab the Musical, which is going to be a little bit about the Brit the Brit pop period. I do believe. 
so there you go so <laughs> yes that might be a curiosity to sort of um take in one day so yeah so your sex so the second album back water uh, pack water back saturday how did this develop and and how did you manage to sort of get a label for that um well jamie who ran um lissy's said he was keen to put a, a single out by us and and he, he could give us a bit of money to to go and do that so we'd um we ended up going to a studio in northwich um in cheshire where there was a studio run by um a guy called baz um who was the engineer on the, the two singles that we did with john rob and um he we went up to this studio so it was really low key um not a, not a, a, a hugely expensive uh, um session three days to record a single so we were going to do flex as the a side and then make up a couple of songs for the b side and we ended up doing a 15 minute version of flex and writing and recording six other songs so we said, well, well, that's an album. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and, you know, I think given sort of Jamie's DIY ethic, that was probably absolutely perfect. You know, you're never going to be able to get get something like that through um, a Warner's offshoot that we ended up on the next one. So um, it was a great thing to put out. It was, you know, there's showed absolutely, there's no sort of sense of direction in that from what we'd done on pointless walks and you know i think if you listen to pointless walks and the italian flag if you had put our three albums you would never be able to work out what order they came because they were all kind of different things happening and um and so you know that making stuff up on the spot thing was something that we absolutely loved to do we did it on all our sessions we did whether for peel or marianne hobbs and yes were you able to do the band as a full-time thing or did you have to have a side hustle at this stage uh, we, yeah we all were were side hustling at the time right which was uh yeah it was it was difficult but yeah sadly there was never there was never the the money in yes to to do but, that. but then your next album this is the one which is the italian flag which does feature the tracks from your second john peel session which yeah. is quite the epic song called slash which can you remember how that came together or is it the same as all the others you know a jam session with um it was i can it, i think it was largely written on a on a very cold tour we of holland and germany we did at the back end of 95 um which was uh tour managed by Ajay from Donkey, or oh, as as was at the time, um, uh, and many well, Dandelion Adventure originally, and you know he's now doing various things in various guises, um, and so yeah, musically that's when it when it came, um, and uh, but which. But some of those songs actually date right back to um, when, you know, soon after Pointless Walks 
was released. Right. So it, so it was kind of, although it was three years later, the album that came in between was kind of just, you know, we'd had half of the Italian flag written when that album was written and recorded and released. And it, mm. so it, it, it did probably more, I would imagine more than half the practices we ever had ended up <laughs> feeding towards um, the Italian flag. So it was quite a long period of, uh, of gestation. Yes, because it's impressive that on your third album, you're on Radar Records at this stage, a part of a a, a, a major. Yeah, I mean, it's not, not where we expected to go, but, um, you know, fair play to... To Tony for um you know finding the interest and uh had you been playing any festivals at this stage? Had you been on the festival circuit? We did, we did too. And you know, when you say the festival circuit, that that wasn't a thing then. There were right. like three festivals in the UK, pretty much. Um there was Reading, there was Phoenix for a couple of years, and there was Glastonbury. Um you know, it would be to, to be the level we were at then, now, would be a very active summer because, you know, there's that many festivals, that many opportunities for bands of our, of our size. Yes. It would have been great. But uh, we did Reading um, in 95, which was amazing. Um, we played the tent. Um, second second last on on before flying saucer attack and um i yeah probably gig wise the highlight of everything we ever did because yes you know it just felt like everybody that ever bought any of our singles was there um or oh, and, and album i mean to be honest we must there must have been more people in that tent than records we've released <laughs> yes that was it if only there was footage I know it's just like, can we go back? You know, get out there, right? Shout out to anyone that went to see Prolapse. <laughs> we're going to With put the... a big tent up, and you're all going to come down. And we're going to do that set again. Yes, <laughs> but that will film it. It would just be, yeah. But it was. I mean, to be fair, it it wasn't all lost. It was um, recorded and broadcast on John Peel. So, Fantastic. And, this um, is... You know, we do have that uh, that record of it. That's such a good one, you know. But then, because you're you're quite a tidy band, you are such a '90s band. Because as we truck up towards the Millennium Bug and worrying about sort of the end of the civilization, as you do quite a lot of the time, um, you have your final album on Cooking Vinyl, which was yeah. kind of such a. It was. It's you know. I think the first album was on was Michelle Shocked, and it had that sort of reputation for folk and acoustic music really didn't it yeah. and sort of so how did you manage to get on cooking vinyl records at this stage um to be well actually yeah the um there was a when we we left warners um we the the guy that was uh well, i say warners radar the guy that was there um moved over to cooking vinyl and was keen to um um, keen to to keep us involved, so that was the the link there, really. Yes, blimey, he was very. Was it? Was it? Was did it pay off? Did he continue his moment in the new job? Did he go? Yes, that was a good move. That yeah, lot. I think he's. I think he's still there. So, um, yeah. so it was. 
Yeah. So where did you record this one? Because this seemed to be in quite a few different studios. Yeah. Well, we did actually even before the Italian flag uh, came out. Um, so that was that was recorded at the Windings in um, in North Wales, which I discovered on reading. You're talking about um, records. This one. Full. Um, which I hadn't realised that they'd done an album at the Windings as well. Um, so there's obviously there's more detail in there than there is on any album. Yes. So um, so there's actually three three of the studios we did that Paul recorded in. Um, so that was in North Wales, and then um, the studio as a studio called Fall in um, Mid Wales, right out in the middle of nowhere that was owned by Dave Anderson, was it? From set up by Dave Anderson from Hawkwind. Um, oh uh, from that area, that, that scene anyway. Um, right. And he um yes yeah, so this studio was identified as somewhere, you know, a nice little residential one out in the middle of nowhere. Let's let's go there and and just write some new stuff. So we went, wrote a handful of songs, um, recorded them, and some of which, well, I think one, one, there's a couple of things that ended up going onto the album. Then we went back a year later and did recorded stuff that we'd kind of written in the more normal way. So it was a, a combination of those two. Plus, there was um, one done recorded in Leicester. Um, not quite sure why we just did one song in Leicester at a studio called Seamus Wong, who's a a guy, um, a friend that we knew who had um, who just set set up a studio there that was still going up until about three months ago. Right uh, when the landlord um, decided to do something else. But, yes, because the, the records are getting much more kind of ambitious at this stage, aren't they? They're suddenly sort of getting exploration in sonic noise and, um, yes, longer. Yeah, well, I think I think on that one, um, there probably there is quite a debt to our seventh member and producer, Donald Ross Skinner. Um, so he produced the Italian flag and, um, you know, we instantly felt like he was one of the band. And so he came on tour with us initially playing keyboards, but then um, he, he then moved on onto guitar um, as well. So we ended up having sort of three guitarists. Yes. Um, and so a lot of a lot of the, the the feel of the album is this combination really of of what we were doing in the studio in its sort of very um. Um, just getting into repetitive grooves, um, and you know, I think there's there's a feel to it of something like Metal Box, even though I don't, I don't think anybody was listen, listening to it at the time. It's only really kind of afterwards as I've listened to it and said, "God, we sounded like we were trying to do that, even though we weren't." Um, and then, you know, the production of it, because by this point, we we knew we were splitting up um 
and we had some stuff we wanted to get out but the the general putting together of it we we left that largely to donald to uh, right kind of give there were some things that were definitely songs some that we're not even sure is this a song or not and we kind of gave it to donald he sort of um mixed it um and then the vocals were largely done separately so yes uh, so did you have that conversation with the band that this was kind of after 10 years that you were all going to call it a day yeah um i i initially um i remember saying to a couple of them um that i'd i'd kind of i just wanted to sort of move on really with my life and it, it kind of because we weren't um it was it was not something that we could make a career out of or make a living out of it was and yeah it was it did also seem to be kind of all consuming and uh and just needed a break really yes. um, I, mean, I think you know we could have stayed together and done it as a much lower a lower key thing you know we, but whenever you've got a record company involved or other you're not completely in in control um by well, no not in control but there's there's external people there who who want you to do stuff it's very hard to just say right this year we're going to do nothing and right we do four gigs yet next year and then the year after we might do an album you have to be entirely self-sufficient to do that and uh that's kind of almost where we ended up being 15 years later and there's a, actually we can do this incredibly lucky we can we can appear and spend two months doing six gigs or whatever it was when we first came back and then disappear again yes but, um but at the time the only way out seemed to be a clean break yeah did it feel slightly sad when you sort of finished the sort of session for that that album that you know that was going to be yeah. the end of the no, chat it, it absolutely did but um but at the same time you know I think we all went off and did different things in our lives that um, that would have been very difficult um, if we'd still been in the band. You know, within a yes. couple of years, two of us were living, well, not me, but Pat and Mick were living in um, Scandinavia. Um, Dave had gone off to, went off to America a few years later. I, uh, you know, I got married and moved out of Leicester and... Uh, all of, all of those kind of different things would have been it would have been, been a lot more conflict in everybody's lives if we were still trying to um trying to do the uh the toilet circuit and uh <laughs> get an album out every 18 months yes this is true but then what happened in 2014 for the band to was it christmas cards or was it a bit more than that did you what was the reason for sort of coming um, back and doing live dates yeah, well, it was it was all thanks to uh, to Mogwai. So um, they were had some gigs um, to celebrate their twentieth anniversary, and they got in touch with Scottish Mick, asking if um, we would consider reforming to support them at the Roundhouse. I think the first one was, and um, I can remember vividly where where i was when i was i was sat in a meeting at work and my phone lit up and there was this message from, from scottish mick saying 
Mogwai want us to reform and support them at the roundhouse. And immediately the rest of that meeting kind of wasn't quite the same. <laughs> <laughs> I think the roundhouse was the first one. And then about a month later, they said, oh, would you do uh, barrel lands as well? So, um, you know, absolutely no brainer, really. And, yes. uh, and then yeah. so we did a few gigs around there to get warmed up and um, and spent time with each other, which, you know, we hadn't we hadn't done. I'd seen a few of them a bit, um, but, you know, we hadn't spent a great deal of time in each other's company and all of that time. Yes. Was it quite a nice experience? Oh, it was great. It was really good. Yeah. I would imagine, yes, it must have, have moments like that. And then you've had Optic Nerve reissued your first album, Pointless Walks, to Dismal Places, which must have been quite nice to see come but out. No, that's not out yet. Um, oh. So the first reissue was um back saturday that got put out a couple of years ago uh, on glass oh glass records gotcha so that's them yeah that's come so uh, then so that that was a couple of years ago um which was really nice so that that was the one that we did own so that was easy to do um, yes and um, and then I guess following on from that, we had um, then Precious Recordings and Optic Nerve got in touch. Can't remember which order, but yes, um, it was around about the same time. So is the the Optic Nerve release of the first album, which was on Cherry Red, is that in the pipeline to come out this year, or is yeah, it to... should be should be October. So we fantastic. We've got dates um, that will hopefully align with it. Um, problem with vinyl these days um, yes, I know. you know fingers crossed they will align and we'll we'll have some to sell but we've got uh we've got four dates lined up in october oh right where are you playing so we're playing leicester um which is our first leicester gig i think since 97 we might God. have played in 99 but i'm not 100 percent certain yes but certainly our first gig in leicester for a very long time because um, we didn't play there when we first came back. Leicester, Glasgow, Leeds and London. It's quite, quite short. Um, but, you know, with two of us being in Scandinavia, it's there's a limit to what you can do. Well, yeah, but it's, it is kind of great that you can do it. I didn't know. Are you in Scandinavia at the moment? No, no, I'm not. I mean, I'm just... I'm, I'm, I haven't strayed far from Leicester. I'm just I'm just near Loughborough. Right. I got you. The other two in Scandinavia. Yeah. Yes. So how long does it take for the band to rehearse and get it up to uh fitness? Um well when we came back so that when we first played in nine in twenty fifteen, we had a weekend in March where just the, the musicians got together and we had a weekend of practicing and then I think we had two pra two days of practices with the singers in the couple of days before the um the first gig so it's probably out of four days worth of practicing yeah um in theory this time we'll have about two and a half days um hopefully all, all being well we'll be playing some stuff that we haven't played since the mid 90s um <laughs> uh which will be good um to try and to focus on the uh 
on the era that's getting re-released yes absolutely god this is great for both you the band and the labels who have put all this stuff out yeah oh absolutely and it'll be so do you do you sort of get a sense that the four gigs will be sold out um i hope so but um i mean we did get very excited um initially after about two weeks there was a link to the tickets for the Glasgow one that was showing us sold out but um uh it turned out that was just the allocation that that one particular seller had (laughs) (laughs) god that's great though i'm Uh, so pleased uh, you've you've got it because i did sort of mention i remember doing an interview with the drummer from um david bowie's you know ziggy stardust woody woodman when they used to reform as uh, holy holy with tony visconti and various other people of how long they rehearsed and i think they just had a day they just said right we just had to practice before meeting know what songs we're going to do and just go and bang it out in a day and then the next day is the first gig so it's like yeah oh, you know it's um, i mean i think I think we could probably get almost get away with it. I mean, the last gig we did, we did a gig in, well, we did two gigs in 2018. Um, I had my uh, 50th birthday and I wanted to do a gig in our village hall, um, including the um, my sixth form golf band, the first gig for... Was that Smile? No, that was uh, the, the Torture Garden. Right. Um, that is so goth. It is. And I didn't know at the time, but most of the songs were entirely ripped off mission songs. But, um, <laughs> and uh, so that was our first gig in 32 years. And then um, the the other band that I've been in for the last 20 years, uh, MJ Hibbert and the Validators. So, um, so the three of us, did sort of like five five songs each uh, in the village hall, and uh, we did a we did a warm up at uh, Moth Club in Hackney, and that was a single practice before, and it was fine. So. Yes, I mean, it was only that was three years after we played previously, so it, it wasn't like it'd been fifteen years, but yes. yeah, it didn't take much. But you're keeping match fit with your other band. Did you just say it was called MJ Hibbert? Hibbert and the validators, yeah. Right. So Mark Hibbert um, is the uh, is the MJ. So we've, yeah, we've done probably about six albums as a fully formed band, in various compilations. My God, that's so impressive. And he's compared to Billy Bragg. Um, yeah, kind of Billy Bragg. With a, a dash of half an odd biscuit, I'd say. Um, <laughs> this is so sweet. My God, so you've really kept a life in music. Yeah, I mean, it's... we Well, certainly recently, we're, we're probably down to about two or three gigs a year. Um, so it's, it's pretty pretty low-key. I mean, we did one about two months ago, um, uh, an indie pop festival in Middlewich that had Darling Buds um, and the Just Jones. Uh, playing and so you know there's we kind of we do get onto that um we not being part of the um clearly the the 80s um indie pop scene um but there's there's a long sort of stretch of of indie pop stuff that that dates from 
back then. Um, some bands, you know, like the Darling Buds, are coming back um, for one reason or, or another. Um, yes. The whole sort of indie tracks scene, which we yeah. played quite a few times at festival. And, you know, that was... And there was also, I think there's this, that the Shine Festival as well that takes place occasionally, but that's, is that 80s or 90s? My God, is it? Um, I think that's you. Yeah. Uh, hold on, I've just been offered some wine. <laughs> Thank you very much. Don't take, yes, don't say no to the wine. Yes. Um, that, that... Yeah, actually, Shine, um, yeah, that's, that's 90s, um, but uh, a lot more kind of heritage, although just looking at the sort of, the lower, the lower end rungs of that lineup. I, I think they're not getting too far away from them. Us getting a call one day. No, you know, like Donald, Donald has played with Salad, uh, one of them recently, and yeah, it was a good time. Yes, that's very good. So, look, if you could have said some, whispered some to your 16, 18 year old self starting out in in the world of rock and pop, what is there anything that you would have whispered in there in your ear? That even uh, in... a seventeen-year-old, it would have been go to Manchester University, go and hang out with some locals, <laughs> and <laughs> form a band and get on top of the pops. <laughs> yes, I know that would have been just. And, and... Been um, otherwise, I I don't think so. I mean, I you know, prolapse didn't achieve what I probably would have gone for a diff dunk. Probably prolapse, I think, would have been a um, a good bit of advice. Um, I don't think it helped. Well, oh, sorry, I think that just kind of missed there. What did you just say after forming a, a Manchester band? You said, um, well, and getting on top of the pops, um, yeah, without Manchester, but but then in terms of prolapse, the word of advice would have been, "Don't call yourself prolapse." Right. I yeah. don't think it helped. <laughs> um, but otherwise, I I don't really have any reg- any regrets about what we did you know i think we it's it was often said that you know we didn't really care what other people thought which is not entirely true we did um but it didn't affect what we were doing we were never kind of playing to the playing to the audience we were always like just hoped that the audience would would come along and uh, remember my dad saying uh, <laughs> at one point have you never thought of playing music that people want to hear? <laughs> <laughs> Good old dad. <laughs> and uh, and actually, I did a, a covers band with some people at work uh, about three years ago, and it was fantastic. And perhaps he was right. But, he um, could have been right. So out of the four albums you did, which one was the biggest seller? Oh, it would be the Italian flag, I'm sure, yeah. That was the one. And did you do much in Europe, and did you go to America at all? Actually, we did a lot more in America than we did in Europe. Um, Europe was, we played two gigs in Switzerland. We played a tour in um, Holland, Belgium and Germany uh, in December of 95. That was absolutely freezing. And uh, we did a one-off in Paris and we played Benny Kazim. Which was fantastic. I mean, uh, backstage having a, a free bar and a, and a swimming pool. You know. My God, that is that is better Can't than really the, anything more than that. That's better uh, than the art centre in Norwich. Uh, yeah, they were not able to provide that. We put it on our rider request, but it didn't come. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, it's not going to happen. What was noticeable then was uh, the bar would open about four or five o'clock, and the queue was just was all British people. The Spaniards didn't even think about it, and obviously with it being in Spain, you know the headliners didn't come on till three in the morning, and by which time we were all fast asleep or just too too drunk to. Right. Yes. Um, yeah. So, what were your American dates like and well, tours? The, the first one, which if you could have designed, if you were given a blank piece of paper and to and asked to write your absolute dream gigging scenario, it probably would have been support Stereo Lab on the west coast of America, and that's so from San Diego up to Seattle. Important stereo lab, which I guess collectively at the time was was you know we were we were all massive fans mm. of and um and that was in their Mars Odiac Quintet Emperor Tomato Ketchup era. So you know for me absolute peak stereo lab. Yes. Um, and yeah, that was just fantastic. Uh seeing a really good gig every night going to fantastic cities. And um and did you go back again? Well, we did. Went to New York quite a few times. Um, played CMJ a couple of times. Uh, went to Boston um, once. So, yeah, so probably about four, four or five times to New York and then the, the tour of the West Coast. Fantastic. God, see, they're great memories, aren't they? This is oh, absolutely, this... absolutely. To have done that, to have got on the plane and said we're touring America, it's just like that yeah, is... it was the first time anybody, any of us, had been to America, and the first night we um was in the Hollywood Hills. We would the record company had um either somebody that they owed a favor of or someone who knew somebody. So there was a house in the Hollywood Hills that was ours for the first week while we were playing in LA and and various places nearby, and um. And it was actually, you know, the guy that does all the um, pavement leaves. Right, yes. There was a load of his artwork just sort of just leaning against the walls. It was not on the walls, but it's kind of like where he stored some of his stuff. And a uh, grapefruit tree in the garden, um, you know, go out and get breakfast off the tree. It's just. My God, that must have been, that must have felt so exciting. Yeah. Yeah, considering where we'd come from, <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was very different. Oh, magic times. Well, look, this has been great. Well, look, all the best for those two releases or potentially three releases. So just to, um, when's the John Peel sessions coming out or have they been? They're, they're they... out. They're out. Yeah. Um, if you go to Precious Recordings, there's presumably a website on here. Well, actually, Bandcamp. Yeah. And I think... If you go to our Bandcamp site, you can buy them off there. Yes. Um. Uh. Or precious recordings, Bandcamp, where he's he's got all of the uh, all of the stuff. My God, this is great! It's great to have this little bit of excitement, isn't it? Um, oh, absolutely! And you know, as I say, that as a package, it's absolutely beautiful. Yes. There you go. Go and buy it. It's gonna. It'll be good. Right. Well, look. Thank you ever so much for this. It's been amazing. If you want, I can always send you the link, and then you can put it on your page. Okay. Yeah. And people Cheers. can go, oh, that's amazing. But yes, thank you ever so much, Tim. Have a great oh, day. Thank Evie. you. Uh, and thanks for getting in touch. Yes, I'm no problem. And uh, take care and all the best. And all right. Yes, Cheers, enjoying yeah. your music. Take care. Bye bye. Thanks. Bye. 
And that, dear listener, is how you end an interview. Right. Thank you ever so much. That was Tim Patterson from Prolapse. And as we were mentioning various, in probably during that interview, they have got their John Peel sessions that have just come out uh, individually. One was recorded in 1994, the other in 97. This is on the Precious Recordings of London, so do check that out. And I do believe you can also get them from Bandcamp as well, so check out the band's material there. Anyway, this has been the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. Um, Also, these have all been archived. Aren't you lucky? And you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Just do C86 Show. It's all there. It's groovy. Anyway, have a great week and um, stay safe.